I don't actually care if nuclear energy is the best energy system for Australia's future or not. I have no ideological devotion one way or another. But if it is, then that is what I want for the next generation of Australian families and industry. I don't know why so many anti-nuclear activists are so ideologically invested in opposing it, but I predict they are going to look even more ignorant in coming decades than they do now. On last week's episode, I shared video from a recent event hosted by Generation Liberty and Students for Liberty, featuring Professor John Humphreys, an economist, and Professor Stephen Wilson, a mechanical engineer, to discuss the topic of energy security, nuclear and liberty. I also interviewed Stephen at the University of Queensland to hear his rebuttal of the stupid things those anti-nuclear activists are saying in the media. Viewers heard that the claims that nuclear is the most expensive energy source are rubbish. The CSIRO report on the comparative prices of energy sources does not compare whole energy systems and therefore falls far short of the purpose for which it was produced. Implemented properly and without activist interference, nuclear energy actually is a long-term solution for affordable, reliable and zero-emission energy. Contrary to what some Greens politicians claim, the smaller scale technology of this century, which has had the benefit of 20 years and billions of dollars of research and development, is currently being delivered. It's engineered to be sophisticated and entirely capable of replacing expiring coal-fired power stations, as well as fitting flexibly into the existing power grid, including with unreliable energy sources. If you haven't seen the episode, make sure you watch it as well as this one. But right now, let's talk about the environmental benefits of nuclear energy systems, nuclear industry safety, and fact check the three big lies about so-called nuclear waste. You are watching The Church and State Show, and I'm Dave Pellow. May all that you stand for, and that we stand for, be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. If this conversation is still on, on, on nuclear as the alternative, which we can deviate from in a second if you'll indulge me, uh, but if it is, then uh, to, to, to borrow a phrase from elsewhere, uh, normally it's easier for Nixon to go to China. Uh, I, I think this is going to come from uh, the Labour Party, or perhaps even the Greens. It's going to be... Uh, it, it, Instead of the, well, I don't know if it's come to Jesus, they'll still be greens. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it won't come from the, it won't come from the grifter faction, or, or it won't come from the red greens. But the leftover green greens, if they actually mean it, if they mean their environmentalism, if they mean that the world is going to end in 10 or 20 years or whatever the latest prediction is, the only logical consequence is for them to come to Jesus, as you say, uh, on the issue of nuclear. 
And I think there is uh, a hint that this is starting to happen amongst the, uh, the non-grifter environmentalist movement. Yeah. And I think that non-grifter environmentalist movement have impeccable leftist credentials, so they're going to be able to say what we've already been telling the world for a long time, but when they say it, more people will listen, which is to say, Nixon can go to China. His, uh, I don't know, for the people who don't know that reference, uh, Nixon is a lifelong anti-communist warrior, uh, and he was the one that went over to China and recognized that the communist China existed as a country because America hadn't uh, recognized that until then. And the idea was that the left-wing American politicians couldn't do it, because they would be accused of being communists. Uh, but Nixon could do it because he was the one that was from the other side of the uh, stereotypical traditional divide. And I think we're, uh, I think we're moving to that point where the, the legitimate people who mean it from the environmental movement are slowly shifting closer and closer into the, or more and more into the nuclear column. And when they hit critical mass, I think we'll see it happen. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis. I'm reliably informed that most under-40s Greens are pro-nuclear. They just are not allowed to say so. Um, so watch this space. We've seen the world's first... So, by the way, Australia is the home of the world's first Green Party, founded by Bob Brown in Tasmania. Um, the first Green Party in the world to formally adopt a pro-nuclear stance is in Finland. So that, that happened um, relatively recently. They did the math. <laughs> um, and, and they understood that this is, this is actually aligns with all the, thing, all the boxes they want to tick. So I think you're right. I think, um, I think Labor's, the Labor Party's um, you know, acceptance of the AUKUS submarine agreement uh, is significant. And and when, you know, when the Labor family, and by the way, there's a number of unions in Australia that are already, the leadership of which is already publicly saying that um, we should have nuclear energy. Uh, so that not the whole union movement, but a number of significant unions, including the Australian Workers' Union, which I think is the oldest union in Australia. Um, Banjo Patterson played a role in its founding at the, out of the Queensland Shearers' strike. Um, so, Henry Lawson. And, and Henry Lawson, yeah. Oh, I heard Banjo Patterson from someone in the union, but there you go, okay. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you're right, John. Things are changing, um, and, the, and the young generation, I mean, most students that I encounter in the university, and, and even younger students now, like Will Shackle, who's over at Churchy in, in you know, year 11, has become a public figure, are just saying, hey, why aren't we... Uh, why aren't we doing this? When you talk about what's good for the environment, unfortunately, this so often happens, and we've done it today uh, so far, but it's, it's being done across this country. When you say environment, people only hear climate change. Like that's the only environmental issue there is. Yeah. There is air particle pollution, there's water pollution, there is how we treat our oceans, there's biodiversity, deforestation, and there is climate change. There's, there's a bunch of different issues. And if a person was genuinely uh, motivated by interest in the environment, I assume they'd be interested in all of them. And yet every environmental discussion only seems to have one topic. How quickly can we make poor Australians pay more for their electricity? I mean, sorry, how, how quickly can we solve climate change? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, it seems to me that if we wanted to address environmental issues, we might start by looking at the environmental issues that are currently most costly and devastating to the world. Every year, this isn't in Australia, we're, we're, we're immune from most of this, but worldwide, every year worldwide, millions of people die from air particle pollution. 
Not from CO2, not from a greenhouse gas, air particle pollution. They breathe in the particles, they die. Not immediately on the spot, right? They, they get asthma, they get lung cancer, they get various other diseases from the air particle pollution. That is a much more solvable environmental issue. It's a much more immediate one, and it's killing real people that we care about, or we should care about, or some people wearing green pretend they care about. They are real people and they're dying, and yet these conversations get so monopolized with CO2, and I'm not suggesting that CO2 is, is not a problem, right? I, the, the globe is warming, we're contributing to it, that's not gonna be a good thing. I also don't think it's gonna be a catastrophe, and the number of people dying from climate change is absolutely dwarfed by the number of people dying from air particle pollution, polluted water, uh, and ver various other real ongoing problems we're seeing day to day. If you care about the, the totality of these environmental issues, then I would put to you that the most important thing we can do, historically proven, theoretically sound, but more importantly, historically proven, the most important thing you could do to address most of these environmental issues is to help poor people be less poor. And I would have thought that's a good thing to do anyway. But if, assuming you don't think it's a good thing to do anyway, it's probably the best single thing you could do to help improve the environment across at least the five issues I mentioned before, uh, air particle pollution, water pollution, uh, the oceans, uh, biodiversity slash forests, and climate change. Of those five, at least four out of those five, all of the non-climate ones, are noticeably, and we have facts, we have evidence for this, they get better when we get richer. There's a concept called the environmental Kuznets curve. And the idea here is uh, when you go from dirt poor and you start making a bit more money, you, you tend to mess up the environment a bit more. Because right? you're starting to make a bit more impact uh, on the world. And as you get richer, you then start to reach a certain point where you can now feed your kids. You've got a roof over your head and you start caring about more things. And what happens is as you get richer, people uh, collectively start caring more about the environmental issues, they come up with solutions and they start solving them. This is not just theoretical, we've got an abundance of evidence for the environmental Kuznets curve in the first four out of those five things. As a possibility there's going to be an environmental Kuznets curve on, on climate change as well, uh, but that is still a very much an open discussion and we haven't hit the point yet. But on the other four, the ones that are actually killing actual people, we know that uh, when an average country uh, gets to uh, an average GDP of about $5,000 per person, uh, deforestation starts reversing. We know that when you get to about fifteen dollars to $20,000 per person, so that's a bit, a bit more, but that's about the middle income, air particle pollution and water pollution starts reversing. China has a very deserved reputation for being an atrociously polluted country. And that's because they went from being dirt poor up to middle income, and as they developed, they were putting out a lot of air particle pollution. They were putting out a lot of water pollution. That was happening, and it was killing. I said millions of people before were dying of air particle pollution. One million of those alone every year in China. Right, that was happening. Here's the thing now. China has hit the inflection point on the environmental Kuznets curve. They hit it a while ago. Right, the deforestation started reversing a long time ago. The air particle pollution has improved 16% over the last decade. Right. The best thing you could do to resolve these environmental issues is help poor people get richer. And the best way to help poor people get richer is to give them cheap, reliable energy. Sure. So the best thing we could be doing is not working out which is the best low carbon, cheap, reliable energy that's on the table. If we genuinely care about those poor people and the global environmental problems, the, the question is simply, what is the cheapest, reliable energy, writ large? And for some countries, that'll be nuclear, and God love it. In some countries, that may be fossil fuels. 
And if that helps po bring poor people out of poverty, and that helps get people past the environmental Kuznets curve, it's still a good thing. I'll just add briefly to that. In China, it's coal and nuclear, interestingly. Mostly coal. It's mostly coal. Um, well, it's the world's biggest nuclear build program by a long shot. And it's, and it's a lot of coal, like, like, you know, 100 gigawatts in the last year. They just is, approved 100 gigawatts in the last year. Yeah, which is like double of our installed capacity and roughly more than four times our coal capacity added in a single year. So just, just for a sense of scale. It's the equivalent of one large coal-fired power station per three days. Yeah. That's what China just approved in the last year. Yeah. And it's going to bring people out of poverty. And hallelujah. I think politicians who are opposed to nuclear will use this argument as a bit of a dog whistle uh, without actually believing it. But it is effective because I think most of the population would have the question, what about the safety of nuclear? Mm. We've heard about Fukushima, there's been um, news coverage about that in our lifetime, and we've seen documentaries about Chernobyl and about when this goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong. That would be in a lot of people's minds. You've said that was 20th century technology talking about uh, the flexibility and scalability of nuclear energy. Is 21st century nuclear technology uh, safe and vastly different from 20th century technology? Um, so yeah, uh, well, I think we need to get nuclear safety in a proper perspective. I mean, I, I ask people, how safe do you want it to be? When you look at the, the data and the statistics from tens of thousands of, of reactor years of operation, the safety record of nuclear is far above the safety record of almost every other form of energy generation. So that's the first thing. Second thing is when you look at the three big accidents that we had in the 20th century, the three big disasters, we have Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in the United States, we have Chernobyl in uh, Ukraine in, in the former Soviet Union, it was the Soviet Union at that time, mm -hmm. and we have Fukushima in Japan. Now of those three um, events, the only one where anybody actually died was in Chernobyl. So Three Mile Island, no, no one was even harmed, no one was even exposed to you know, high doses of radiation. They lost the asset, um, but then the other unit at Three Mile Island uh, operated for many, many years with a, with a very high performance level and, and, a, and a fantastic safety record. Uh, so the safety systems worked at Three Mile Island, they lost the asset. At Fukushima you had an enormous, a, a, a huge earthquake and an enormous tsunami that killed uh, close to 20,000 people um, mm. through the, the drowning, uh, just the devastation of that enormous um, series of tsunamis that came ashore. Uh, and despite that, the scale of that disaster, that the, the wave that was far higher than was envisaged when the engineers designed the plant, uh, the earthquake that was um, far stronger than they had in, designed the plant for, the plant survived uh, perfectly well. The, the problem was 
that they'd put the backup generators in the wrong place. They put them in the basement, they got flooded, and then they lost power. Uh, and so they, they suffered uh, the loss of, of that plant as a result. But no deaths, there's maybe one death associated with Fukushima, depending on how you interpret the, uh, the information. But basically, that the Fukushima disaster is actually a demonstration of the safety of nuclear energy. And then you've got the Chernobyl accident, where there were forecasts of thousands and thousands of cancer deaths. Professor Thomas, Geraldine Thomas at, at uh, Imperial College London, who was the custodian of the tissue bank, the, the human tissue bank for people exposed to radiation after that event, uh, changed her view on nuclear as a result of not seeing this huge wave of really? cancers that had been predicted. Yeah. Mm. So, and the other thing to remember about that, uh, the Chernobyl incident, is that the design of that reactor was fundamentally flawed. It should never have been built. The Soviet um, engineers knew that it had that flaw. They hid that information and failed to tell the operators that they needed to take particular care under certain conditions. And so they had unwittingly, in that test they were conducting, put the reactor into exactly the condition where uh, it, it was... Uh, catastrophic. Catastrophic, exactly. Mm. So when we put this in perspective, if, if the aircraft industry had the same safety record as the nuclear industry, you know, we would have had just three significant crashes of aircraft in the entire history since World War II. We would have had only one aircraft crash where people had died, and that would have been of a badly designed aircraft in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And then you want to say, as a result of that, we should ban all air yeah. travel. I mean, it's it's just absurd. And then and then now we have designs that are even safer than the 20th century designs. Uh, so, you know, if if you think that nuclear is dangerous, then you should never fly again in an aircraft. If you think that flying in an aircraft's dangerous, you should never again get in a motor car because that's even more dangerous than air travel. Yeah. So we need to have a rational approach to the safety issue. Yeah, yeah there does seem to be a uh, irrational safetyism mm -hmm. whereby uh, citizens and, and some people believe uh, a goal or a standard of zero fatalities is is the objective and only acceptable outcome um, which yeah. i think as you've just said nuclear comes closest to yeah you can never you can never reduce risk to zero that's one of the first things you learn when you study risk in engineering school is it is reducing risk to zero is impossible mm. um, and you know, so so it's important to keep to keep that in mind. I think when we think about safety and risk, mm. uh, in a post-COVID world, it uh, seems optimistic to hope uh, a population like Australia will accept some level yeah. of reasonable risk. Well, yeah, I think we've been we've been conditioned to think of risk in the wrong way, mm. and the approach that we take to mitigating one, we, there's a tendency we've developed a tendency to fixate on a particular risk try to reduce that to zero, which is impossible, and in the process to create other risks that are even larger. And costs, yeah. And, and, and other costs Human that costs. are higher, yeah. If we're talking about how to convince people to at least allow nuclear, and we're talking to the left of centre, the, the obvious thing is you want an alternative to fossil fuels, 
well, I'm sorry, but this battery technology you keep talking about is still probably further away than you hope it is. Uh, so we're just going to keep burning coal. How about you get on the nuclear train? So that would be the pitch to, uh, to lefties on nuclear. Uh, it's, it wouldn't be me saying what I actually believe, because I don't think there's anything wrong with coal. But it would be how to speak to that crowd. Um, for, I don't think you really need to convince the right. You just say, if you don't like it, if you think it's expensive, legalize it anyway. I mean, that's, that's not an argument for, for banning something. We discussed that earlier. Um, and as I said before, I think I'm the wrong person to ask because I think we are really close to the tipping point. This seem, may seem like a weird analogy, uh, but uh, gay marriage. Right? So about 20 years ago, everybody had to pretend they were against it even if they were for it. Today, pretty much everyone has to pretend they're for it even if they're against it. And that tipped in about a week. I remember being involved in this discussion for a long time. Thank you, I appreciate it, thanks. Uh, then it, there was a lot of people... Don't worry about them. Uh, there were a lot of people who, were, uh, who believed something and they were pretending they were against it because it was before the tipping point. And once you hit that tipping point, everyone had to go back and pretend that they always agreed with it all along. Right? I think nuclear is getting close to that tipping point, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask about how are we going to convince people. I think that argument is almost already won. Uh, I think there are the, the bigger argument is how do we convince people that it's more important to ensure poor people have access to consistent, reliable, cheap energy than it is to play other games about how moral we are because we decreased warming by 0.1 degrees in 100 years' time. Yeah, I think... Um that's an interesting perspective, John. <laughs> I think um, I think that I tend to try and convince people of things. It's one of my big failings. But I think in this uh, conversation, we should be asking and listening. I, and, and partly for the reason you're saying is that there's actually a lot more people that are already supportive of this, or they're curious and want to learn. So. Um, and, and the reality is that earlier surveys found that lots of people were in favour but thought they were in a tiny minority because everyone was too afraid to raise the topic at the barbecue. Um, now we're in a world where we can talk about it and then people are discovering, oh, you already, oh, you already like nuclear, oh, you're interested in it. And so maybe that's why it looks like something changes in a week when actually it's actually been changing kind of invisibly below the Oh, surface. I agree. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it looks like it changes suddenly. And I agree, we are getting closer to that tipping point. Uh, we need to have the conversations and we need to broaden out and talk about, you know, the bigger issues, the, the energy security issues and, and all of those things as well. Uh, Stephen, what about the waste? Um, conservatives, right-wingers, Christians, libertarians, whatever, um, other camp the pro-nuclear people are uh, mm. put in um, are not unconcerned about the environment um, and we are aware that it's effectively zero uh, emissions and, and all of the things that mm. we we hope to achieve with intermittent uh, renewable technology yeah. um, but then again there's this thought or rhetoric that's been put in our head over decades that nuclear waste is a problem um, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm not setting you up for something. I know what you're going to say. Um, I, I believe I've heard something about even spent nuclear fuel can be a fuel source. Um, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but what about the waste? Yeah, what about the waste is sort of question number three. You know, if there's cost, there's time, and then what about the waste? Um, 
this is a this is a sort of almost a fixation of the anti-nuclear movement. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that I had the same concern myself, and I have come to realise, um, thanks to people patiently explaining things to me, that I'd believe three big lies about nuclear so-called waste. I'm going to call it so-called waste because it's only waste if you waste it and it can be put to good use as, as you've alluded to, uh, Dave. So the three big lies about um, used fuel from reactors, maybe we should take one little step back and say that when people talk about nuclear waste, there are three broad categories, low level waste, intermediate level waste and high level waste. Low level waste, you know, gloves, dust jackets, mops, things like that. Um, the, uh, I think the whole quantum of that every year in Australia from the uh, reactor at Lucas Heights is, I think, two shipping containers worth. Um, we know how to handle that safely. Uh, it's put in drums and it's stored and it presents no threat to anybody. Uh, there's intermediate level waste, which is more radioactive, other things that have come into contact with radiation. And, um, that we can also handle. We've got um, a, a there's a facility that's been being developed to um, store that uh, on a long-term basis. But the main thing people are talking about is what's called high-level waste, which is basically the fuel that's been in a reactor. Uh, it's become very hot and highly radioactive. So the three big lies about that are. It's a huge problem, lie number one. There is no solution, lie number two. And dealing with it is going to be extraordinarily expensive. That's lie number three. The reality is it's a very tiny problem. Uh, we have multiple options and ways of dealing with it. And in the scheme of things, it's actually not that expensive. Uh, and so as you've touched on, one of the options we have for dealing with that material is to send it to a reprocessing plant. There's already um, reprocessing plants in the world. For example, there's one in France. Uh, you reprocess that material. Um, you can recover. Uh, there's an enormous amount of energy that's still in there. Wow. Uh, you separate out the, the nasty stuff, which is then an even small, you, you take a very, very small problem and make it a very, an even tinier problem. Uh, we know how to manage those um, those highly radioactive uh, materials. Is that profitable or a net cost? At the moment, it's cheaper to take virgin uranium from a mine um, and transform it into fuel than it is to um, take uh, fuel from the reprocessing facility. So in future, if the cost of uranium increases, then it'll, it may become cheaper to use the reprocessed fuel. But the way we should think of that material is that is uh, an energy store for the future uh, and we should look after it in a sensible way that enables us to use it in the future yeah. um, when future generations need it. Um, so what about, I mean the, the storage, other than sending it away, what is, how do we deal with the waste? At the moment, it's, so when it comes out of the well, reactor... Imagine so a, an established mature nuclear industry in Australia, everything you dream of the waste it would produce, how would we deal with that? The spent fuel, we would reprocess it and, uh, and use it again uh, and basically 
then the, 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 the material that's left um, would go into uh, casks and into long-term uh, repositories. It takes up a very small volume. Uh, it's, it's not a major drama. Okay, interesting. Well, final question. Um, what lessons have we learned from other established nuclear industries in other countries that you would want to fix their errors and mistakes as we establish regulatory bodies and legislation mm. uh, and a nuclear industry in Australia ready to launch in the next or following decade? Yeah, I think uh, one of the big lessons is when we build reactors, we should build them in a series. We shouldn't build a unique first-of-a-kind reactor, then an, you know go away and improve the design and build another unique first-of-a-kind reactor. Get the design, um, settle on the design that's right for our context, and then just replicate and and deploy that um, in a in a series production uh, project after project. That is the way to to get good cost outcomes. Another really important thing is we need to have the right kind of regulatory system. Um, we must not do silly things like appoint anti-nuclear activists to regulatory bodies. Uh, we need a regulatory system that's safe and sensible and that works. Uh, that is going to be vital for you know, sensible deployment of this technology, just like it is for any other safety critical industry, whether it's the airline industry, the chemical industry, any other industry. Yeah. So I think they're two of the really big uh, lessons that we need to take on board. Um, and, and we need to um, leverage the technological advancements that are available from other countries. So we don't try and create an, another Boeing in Australia. We don't try and create another Airbus in Australia. Mm -hmm. We buy Boeing aircraft, we buy Airbus aircraft, we deploy them in our airlines, uh, and we operate them safely and, uh, and economically so that everyone can benefit from the technology. Yeah, brilliant. Professor Stephen Wilson, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to the supporters who donate a monthly amount to keep this big mission in media honesty moving forward. If you'd like to become a supporter or subscribe to the essential weekly updates, please go to davepello.com where you can also see past episodes and articles by me. Tickets for the next annual Australian Church and State Summit are now on sale and for a limited time you can get up to 25% off by booking your seats early. To buy early bird tickets or see where else we'll be having a church and state conference before then, head to churchandstate.com.au. God bless you and Australia, and I'll see you next week. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.